I think what's what's become clearer, certainly in the last few years, as competition in the game industry has really stepped up, is that there's a fundamental difference between a great game and a great game business. You know, you could be super lucky. You, your game is an instant hit. It's resonating with users. But for when that's not the case, uh, or even when you just want to take your game growth to the next level, that's where we come in. So we've developed a really incredible platform that's designed to make you as powerful and as capable as possible in growing your game, whether that's growing your game revenue or growing your user base. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, Marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. AppsFlyer, though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppsFlyer's latest product, the Incrementality Solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppsFlyer's incrementality solution is built around remarketing. It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With, with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest you head out to appsflyers.com. What's up? Hey, everyone. Welcome to Twig 110. Today, we have a full crew. Myself, Joe Kim, Eric Kress, Adam Telfer, Mishka Katkoff, and special guest, yes, the John Jordan. If his name sounds familiar, that's because you've probably read many of John's articles already in pocketgamer.biz, as well as other gaming publications. Welcome, John. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Yeah, great to have you. But and before we dive into updates and this and that, uh, John, can you give us like a quick overview in terms of like, you know, your background and what you're up to now? Absolutely. So, yes, I've been in the game space now for over 20 years, started out um, as a journalist, doing a bit more consulting now. Um, I'm a co-founder at Steel Media, which is the company behind Pocket Gamer and Pocket Gamer Connects conferences. And as you say, um, I spent most of my time um, uh, at Steel Media running PocketGame.biz. I was editor and, 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 and that sort of thing, still contributing there. Um, but the last three years or so, I've actually been uh, getting really interested in blockchain and um, the disruption that's coming to games. Um, probably not very appropriate for this podcast, maybe maybe in our future episodes, but uh, that's, that's where I spend my time thinking at the moment. I have to say one thing. For some reason, John, I thought that you have like a green hair or a blue hair but you have like a normal hair. <laughs> where, where did I get that? Is that some kind of image that I've seen? No, no, it was it, it, when we travelled more. When when there was a uh, when you had to act a bit more to get on stage, um, then then yes, I would dye my hair and, and occasionally paint my nails, that sort of thing. But uh, but I'm I'm sitting in in my uh, in my garden office. Haven't travelled for however many months. So, uh, Any like sacrifice it. for the craft, huh? You have <laughs> exactly, to exactly. just go. I'll, you have to stand out. I like the crypto John. Crypto John is like a like a very normal John. <laughs> Can we go into crypto? Can we like go off the oh, rails? <laughs> no, please let's not. not I, I, I did. I did a. a Come uh, on, we need that podcast. <laughs> I did a panel on crypto, and I swear I was throwing up in my mouth the whole time. I was like, "What is going on with this thing?" Um, anyway, 
actually, you know, I forgot to talk about the news that we're covering today. So maybe I could just do that right now for folks who want to know what we're actually going to be talking about news-wise. But first is Embracer Group acquires 13 studios. Here's everything you need to know from gamesindustry.biz. Second, Apple will reduce App Store cut to 15% for most developers starting January by The Verge. And finally, Roblox IPO and some financials from the Financial Times. Well, it's good to be back, guys. I'm here, two weeks uh, hiatus, and, I, and I'm happy to be back to talk some serious shit. But uh, <laughs> what do we got? This Joseph? is more cathartic for you than it is for our audience, isn't it? No, I'm telling you, I get pent up rage, you know. So I need, to, I need, I need an outlet, right? And my I, family is just sick of me, you know. So does everybody else think that Eric Crest is like a Bill Burr of pot of like games? <laughs> it's just like. Well, anybody that listens to Bill Burr knows I'm copying almost all of his <laughs> shtick, you know, because I just love that guy to death. Like, he's amazing. Uh, dude, his Saturday Night Live skit, or um, his whole his t- thing at Saturday Night Live was hilarious. So I recommend Bill it. Burr of game analysis or just company <laughs> analysis. <laughs> all right, guys. John's right, getting bored of your... <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right. All right. So... Let me start off with, with some updates. So number one, this is not even an update. This is a game that I'm playing right now. And I feel like everybody should give it a go. It's called Soul of Eden. It's by Rayarch. And it is very much like Clash Royale, but in many ways better. So I'm, I wouldn't say that it's better than Clash Royale, but they've done a lot of things that is totally different. And it feels very interesting. The sessions and the, and the battles are faster. The unit design is way deeper than in Clash Royale. There's a lot of passive abilities. And if you played any kind of uh, MOBAs or, or that kind of games, like it's not that deep, but it's still more interesting to make the, uh, the unit combos. There's no freaking chest mechanics where you have to wait for four hours and this and that. They have actually more interesting upgrading system with various different resources, with breaking down the cars. There's more uh, abilities to build the deck that you want. There's four unique factions. I mean, I'm telling you everything. Just download Soul of Eden, and the name is horrible. The art might not be what you're looking for, but I, I, I trust me, this is a good game. Anyway, that was just a, a plug for, for a game that I'm playing right now. Um, the two news that I have is, first one is Game Refinery's Sports Report is out. And you might think that sports category is not that interesting because, you know, it's mainly EA and some other sort of a casual sports games like Golf Clash and Sword. But if you look at the uh, Sensor Towers H1 2019 to H1 2020 report, racing is actually the, the, the genre that grew the most in terms of, no, second most in terms of revenue when comparing the first part of the year. It grew by 51%. And even in terms of downloads, the category was up by 33%. So it's one of the most growing subgenres in sports. So I suggest looking at, at the, uh, the report. There's a lot of insights into the racing category. What's up, Eric? Katkoff, come on. Give me a break, dude. Fucking what? racing is mice nuts, dude. Racing and sports is like 3% of the market, right? right. So, yeah. so here's the thing. So here's it grew thing. from like 1 million to 1.5 <laughs> million. Right. What the hell? Don't go no. racing. Racing is like the biggest, you know illusion of, of possible success out there right and I sports is dominated so. by ea right so don't i don't, don't think so 
I would, stop, I would rather stop. look at this way. I'm, I'm looking at what is growing and then I'm looking at what is happening in those genres. So in case of racing, like the latest, latest big racing game was CSR2. That was released maybe, what, five years ago? So there hasn't been released anything new, yet the installs are growing, the, down, the, uh, the revenue is growing. There must be more demand that there's Look, supply. You cannot, you cannot cherry pick percent year over year or percent growth, right? <laughs> what do you mean? The market I can. is this. Racing is 3% and it's dominated by like two or three games, right? End of story, right? There's no, there's no room for racing. I mean, dude, Mario Kart got crushed, you know, like, all right, enough. Moving on. Okay. Wait, so, wait, let me, wait, wait. Let me, so one thing, Eric, so say if I was a smaller or mid-tier developer, right? Like I'm not talking about big EA-sized developers. It, looking which, at what's happening, looking at what's happening in the say clash space, right? You've got hunting clash, fishing clash. This model seems to be actually relatively interesting. Clash model could be applied to racing, racing, and clash. you could get a refresh, right? Like I, I, we're not talking about like competing as Need for Speed, not talking about all of a sudden getting Call of Duty mobile style, style numbers. But as a smaller studio, you know that's that's a wide open lane. We could, yeah. I could see it moderate success there yeah 100 million dollar game dude i don't no, know you guys no, after angry birds tv ltv 100 million angry birds go all these games have come and gotten destroyed i don't even know why you're even discussing racing but whatever Shit. i mean go ahead you know make do your best okay two years from now there's gonna be a big racing game i'm just saying anyways let's move on to to another one so i usually do the game of the week pick uh now i want to Give a shout out again to another small game that their previous one made only over 100 million. So that's Kefir, and they have a they have a new game out called Frostborn. It's it's rapidly scaling. Uh, the numbers are looking pretty good. It is in the survival category. There's not a lot of competition. Kefir's first game was Last Day on Earth. It did about 200 million in revenue with 120 million installs. So there's clearly a lot of demand. They tried a reskin with a game called Grim Soul. That did not really work. It was like a fantasy reskin, but this Frostbound reskin is, is looking to be scaling nicely. And there's not a lot of competition in the survival category. Like there's some startups like Colossi Games, but but not a lot of competition. So uh, looking very interesting. Sure. So my updates now. Let's get into yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> unless, unless, Eric, unless Eric wants to dunk on the uh, survival category. I, I mean, do you like own stock in these companies or something? I mean, what the hell? Okay, moving in Kefir, on. Go. In Kefir? No. <laughs> I mean, this thing's made million and a half, dude. Let's just talk about something material. Come on. <laughs> oh, Adam's, Adam's update is far more material. Let's do this. Okay, so super data, Eric's favorite data source. Oh, it's um, reporting October data. Um, so they were reporting that Genshin Impact was the highest grossing game. Uh, Gotcha-driven open world action RPG released on PS4, mobile, and PC, if you haven't actually played it. Um, Sensor Tower was reporting 245 million over the same period, um, and that's mobile alone. So that was only the, uh, the in terms of revenue, they're only, um, say, they, they were number two against Pokemon Go. There is no estimate publicly for PC and PS4. Um, so the, the super data is the best estimate that we have. Personally, like this is great to see, but I definitely want to see more data points. The problem here is that you only get super data data from one month, and this is capturing the launch, but not really how they sustained. And that's really what what more would I question, right? Like especially when looking specifically at Western players, 
whether that this design is actually working and whether the gotcha is actually scaling. Because from a mobile design perspective, their gotcha design actually leaves a lot to be desired. Eric, know, dude, you, you look at the you look at the mobile chart so far, and I know it's been really short, but they basically spike each time they release a new character and to the same level as they did before. So it looks like it's kind of holding in there for a gotcha game. Um, I know there's been some criticisms and pushback in terms of how severe the gotcha is, but Again, like I, I made this point yesterday is that like there's only like 3 million downloads in the US, which is not a small amount, but with that small, relative to something like Fortnite, with that small of an audience, I think the only way you can monetize at this scale is with, you know, insane gotcha. And I think that audience will continue to spend on it as long as they create the content. I think their biggest problem is I don't know if they're releasing enough content. Uh, their cadence doesn't seem fast enough to... Yeah. Um, to satisfy the players, or at least the people that I've seen playing the game. Yeah, um, that, that's more what I'm worried about in terms of the actual scalability of the gacha. Yeah, um, and, I, and, and you it, know how much content they need to produce in order to keep those spikes. Like it is a triple A game, which mean, or triple A game, which means that they're going to have to do a lot more content each time they do a drop, which forces them at a slower cadence. So from right. my perspective, they should be trying to figure out systems to drive more end game engagement from less content. Got it. Efficiency. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it should be interesting how it evolves. I mean, I, I do think it will be somewhat of a shark shark fin, you know, but I think it's probably found a great audience that should yeah. keep spending for a relatively long period of time. No, no, they've had an excellent launch. I'm just looking at, okay, wh where is the signs that they're actually going to be able to sustain? And uh, when is it like, where is it going to land? Right. Or is it going to sustain that? I think, I don't know if we talked about this before. The problem with this is that like it ends lends clearance to this cross-platform PC mobile bullshit that may or may not ever be successful depending on the uh, uh, genre. Um, and so now everyone's talking about, oh my God, we got to do it this way, you know, but that's not necessarily the case. So the next time you do a 4X game, you don't put it on freaking PC and mobile and expect it to be like, that's going to lead yeah, to I, I can't wait for uh, 4X games to move to PS4. And that's exactly how it Yeah, exactly. Play. That's what we need. <laughs> right. Well, we, need a, no, we need a Switch version, right? Because they do have 70 million installs. Well, let's put the 4X game on Switch, right? Cross-platform. It's an amazing strategy. I can't wait to play Call of Duty Mobile on PS4. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, second one, Lightbox, 3.3 uh, million in funding from Hyro Capital, 1UP, and March Gaming. Um, this is the XZ2 Live studio. Um, so if you remember the game Battle Nations, uh, they were later acquired by King as their simulation slash mid-course studio in Seattle. Um, unfortunately, they eventually went shut down in 2019. So uh, it seems like some key talent from that studio has now formed Lightbox or Lightfox. Um, the one thing that they're doing is they're pitching a hyper core studio uh, with their debut game being a 3v3 real-time mixed PvE and PvP game. Um, sounds kind of like the, um, what's it called? Super Evil Mega Corp Black Catalyst thing. I forget the name of it. Catalyst Black. Um, Catalyst Black. Okay, so I was close. Uh, the focus here is the race to beat the boss first, influenced by World of Warcraft raids. Um my big issue with this, <laughs> like on top of the fact that like PVEVP stuff, you know, it has a lot of issues. But <laughs> the thing that constantly bugs me is the industry's fascination with hyper core, hybrid casual, mid casual, mid core things. They're all trigger words for me. How could you even say hyper core? <laughs> How could you even say that word without losing your mind, right? What yeah. the fuck? Who's calling? <laughs> when did hyper core become a term? Seriously, I, I that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen, right? 
but this isn't this isn't this isn't for for consumers is it this is this is a vc position yeah, so, yeah of course oh, really. but, you know, you've got to take it the right way yeah, VC's like, oh, this is new. And, and you can, you know, Adam may be triggered, but you understand what they're trying to do. Yeah, you, know, you want to get the games faster, and you want, and they're going to say it's going to be, you know, fairly accessible. I mean, I, I remember playing Battle Nations because in soft launch, it was really good. Um, it was kind of maybe, you know, it's kind of weird for King to buy the studio and then shut it down. Um, but you know, I think, dude, they, yeah, well, I mean, who's, yeah. who's the pedigree from that studio? But they, you know, they they, they had they, they made a decent game there. I'm not saying this yeah, the backstory really on that is really fascinating because yeah. I think King just completely squandered. That, that was the beginning of their strategy to actually try to build something outside of fucking puzzle games. And they acquired one studio and let it rot, right? Well, and no, they, they, they also bought they non-stop didn't they, out of Singapore. They bought a few studios. That they yeah, but nothing, nothing material and, and sizable to actually make an effort at it because they didn't understand anything but puzzle. Like, that's the whole problem. Like, the whole, inst- the whole division was, the whole company is set up to do puzzle games and everything else just seemed like completely foreign and, and Yeah, but you have to, that situation, you have, to, you have to try and understand something else, don't you? Otherwise, you just go, well, we're just going to sit and make puzzle games forever. So, no, well, the again, didn't buy them to make puzzle games all the time. They, they want them. They've been Eric, constantly trying to make mid-core games for the last Eric decade. is actually right. Eric is right. Like, there were rumors, even when they were making Call of Duty internally, uh, that, that there was a lot of backlash internally because they didn't ma- want to make violent games and they they were against these type of games being made. And so this is just hearsay. I haven't been at King, just, just for the reference, hearsay in the industry, but still. It happens over and over in this industry. It's like cultural atrophy, right? Where you only can do one thing and that's what everyone is is valued based upon. And therefore, if you try anything else, like it doesn't work because it doesn't fit the same rubric as what the, you do as, as a core uh, um, um, you know, core, uh, whatever, core ability, right? Anyway, whatever, moving on. I, this is, what is, yeah, I just want to say one thing. I feel like and, and Eric then... is extra, extra angry. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm <laughs> getting want... sleep last <laughs> night, dude. <laughs> no, no, but this look... one's going to have like explicit, like right <laughs> at the top, right? We're going to have to have the family. <laughs> no, you can actually mark it when you're releasing the episode as this is the explicit version. Can we have but like a- explicit Adam... and not explicit versions? <laughs> yeah. So Adam, you, you've worked at Wuga and you know that, that, because Wuga had a very broad portfolio and did different type of games. So yeah. if you're making these casual games, especially if you're making puzzle games that have notoriously high retention early on, like we're talking about 55 day one, you know, above 40 day seven, that kind of stuff. And then you're looking at mid-core games and you're like, what is this? 40 something day one? This is a train wreck. Like we need to fix this. And and if you're just used to looking at certain type of numbers and you look different type of numbers, it's just not going to fit. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what I'm kind of i'm actually with eric here this is the the innovator's dilemma isn't it the innovator's dilemma is classically you you have a company it gets really good at the one thing you spend all your time getting even better at that thing and then by doing that you can't you never can make anything else because everything is focused towards the one thing i mean that's that's classic culturally between core and casual right like casual the instinct is to create like very very strong and accessible games which have a content treadmill you go to a core game and you have studios that are trying to make hyper complex games that can sustain engagement for as long as possible so you have culturally a studio which like you you see this with AAA developers to mobile you see this from casual developers to core on on mobile where culturally they don't understand how to build the other type of game but either way for this pitch in particular coming back to lightfox because honestly they are a very strong studio but all we do on this this podcast is throw stones so let's throw some stones <laughs> um i i just would would give them some words of caution here right like when you're talking about hyper core which i'm assuming is hybrid casual you're trying to build this thing where you have a very low cpi but you have the ltv side of a more core game great i think 
everyone in the entire industry is trying to do this. And I would just say that the CPI side is where more traditional free-to-play developers tend to struggle um, because they just don't have experience of walking into, say, hyper-casual markets, right? They need to make sure that they have the UA expertise internally that can actually build out a game that can drive the CPI down to pennies, right? Like if, if they don't have that, I just don't understand how they can say hyper in their pitch deck. They can listen to our previous podcast episode about the marketability. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to push anything like that. <laughs> Anyways, JK, you go. First update for me, according to uh, gamesindustry.biz, TikTok publisher ByteDance has created a publishing arm for games called PixMain, as well as a gaming platform called Dunjuan. PixMain has five mobile games in the works focused on the Chinese market. Of these, three will be published on PC, and one will also get a Switch release to Eric's point on cross-platform. Uh, and the Switch game called Grim Valor is by Finnish developer Direlight. And the Don Juan platform will specialize in casual games like puzzle and side-scrollers. And it's pretty clear here that ByteDance seems to be ramping up game efforts as it reported it intends to compete with Tencent and NetEase. So definitely expect a lot of aggressive movement from ByteDance moving forward. Uh, next update, Roblox just had the biggest book tour event in publishing history for Ernest Klein's book, Ready Player Two, yesterday. The event included, within Roblox, a treasure hunt event and virtual Q&A with Klein and Roblox's CEO, Dave Bazuki. You will also be able to catch the stream of that Q&A on December 1st at 10 a.m. Pacific time, so be sure to check that out if you can. And speaking of the metaverse, Klein stated, Roblox is the closest thing to the Oasis in real life, and this contest is the closest thing to the treasure hunt in my book. I disagree with that, but anyway, I'll, uh, I, I actually think there's another game that is the closest thing to the, to the metaverse, but I'll leave that as an exercise for the audience to figure out. And now I actually have a few updates in terms of Epic. First, Epic announced it will launch a subscription service for Fortnite called the Fortnite Cruise subscription to launch on December uh, 2nd to align with the Season 5 launch. And with the subscription, players will get the following, a battle pass for season five, a thousand V-Bucks every month, which is valued at about $8 at current discounted prices, uh, and a Fortnite crew pack with an outfit bundle. Second, a famous Fortnite leaker, Lucas7Yoshi, announced on Twitter that Fortnite will soon launch modding support for for the game. He claims, quote, confidence for this is it's 100% in the works. And... Next to some of those tweets are a bunch of deleted tweets on why he believes so, but you can check out his Twitter account if you want to check what uh, he had written about that. And final update on Epic is that Epic announced you can now video chat in Fortnite using House Party. I thought this was a pretty cool way to integrate House Party. And congrats to Epic, as always, for pushing the envelope and doing lots of cool stuff. All right, quick updates. Well, I'm back after two long weeks and... uh... Boy, you guys were freaking terrible at those last two podcasts. I mean, not to say that it was because I wasn't there, but it's just like, and you could draw that conclusion, I imagine. But but it's like the overall tone of the podcast was just so drab, dude. You guys got to liven shit up, okay? So, for example, in the earnings report, all you guys did a great job of actually describing what happened in these earnings reports, 
but you buried the lead, dude. The stocks were getting crushed and, and Glue was up. Like Zynga was down 17 after earnings. EA was down eight. Glue was up 30. And they didn't even mention that, right? That's like the whole point of earnings calls is to see what the reaction is to Wall Street. And there was no discussion whatsoever on that, right? And so like next time you guys do this, and I don't want to be a part of it because my whole business is actually talking to investors about this stuff, you know, fucking have some like, cojones dude and start talking some shit you know like it was a it was a it was a dramatic quarterly earnings release for almost all the publishers and on top of that we saw the announcement of of the the covid shots or whatever and which basically sent all the stocks down because all the people that stay at home stuff got got destroyed so anyway fail right and then Ernest, you know, my boy Ernest, I wish I was there to debate him on Activision, but Jesus, he's got to remove his tongue from Bobby Kotek's ass, okay? That was, like, ridiculous. Like, it's, like, verbatim he was reading what Bobby Kotek says every goddamn quarter, right? Get off the earnings call and do some primary research because we've talked about in the podcast a million times. This thing with Blizzard is a completely different issue. Bobby is a great operator, but this thing with Blizzard, they cannot create the quality that he's suggesting that they can create in the current current situation that they are, and it's proving it out as every time they delay, 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 delay. Anyway, so I'm not going to go into that because we've talked about it ad nauseum before, but like, listen yeah, and back. Ernest that isn't here to defend himself, so. No, that's true. <laughs> yeah. But if he wants to look at what, what's going to happen with Activision and mobile, all he has to do is look at Nintendo. That's exactly what's going to happen right? The best game they got in Activision is a game that they don't even make, right? That's what's, that's what's likely going to happen over, over the next few years. So we'll see. Okay. Um, but he was right about a few things though. I'll give him some credit there, but I just, anyway, uh, the other thing. Oh, well, part of the reason I haven't been in the podcast for a few weeks is first of all, destiny came out <laughs> and then also, uh, world of Warcraft came out, right? So I can't spend time on the podcast. I got leveling to do, right? Um, so I'm going to be a little bit hard to reach for the next couple of weeks, but I, I just want to tell one story. Like, so I, I really didn't want to play destiny this time because the destiny is exactly the same fucking game, every goddamn expansion. Right. And it's frustrating as hell. Right. Um, but I started playing and then I was like, eh, I don't want to play anymore. And then I saw a video pop up that says, Hey, there's a loot cave. And for anybody that doesn't know what a loot cave is, it's basically a black door that continuously spawn mobs. Then you kill and loot and level up. And I spent five fucking hours one day just sitting there shooting my <laughs> shooting into a black cave. Um, so I immediately am all in, right? Now I have to get the level cap, the most soft and the hard cap. I spent, again, six hours or something doing this. Uh, and clearly, I have, I have some serious problems when it comes to these looter shooters. Um, and then the worst part about it was is that my son caught me doing this and I had to explain to him what I was doing, and he just shook his head at me and said, "You're freaking weird, Dad." <laughs> I was like, "Okay, humiliating." <laughs> so I did motor up to 1,200 gear score. I'm sitting at like 1,230, and uh, I'm a few weeks probably to 1,250, and then I'll probably put it down again. Um, everything is just too similar in that game. They just—they really need to change the change the formula a little bit. Um, and then finally, the WoW expansion came out. Um, all my all the, my guildmates are up to level 60 already. Of course, I'm sitting at like 53. So I will report back and tell you how it is. So far, so good. Uh, that's probably all I'm going to play for the rest of the holiday. Maybe I'll play some cyberpunk. But anyway, it's good to be back. It's good to talk some trash. Um, you guys got to step it up when I'm not around, all right? Someone's got to pick it up, okay? Please. <laughs>
Okay, people, we're going to take a quick commercial break to hear from our sponsor, Beta Hat, and then we will be right back. So stay tuned. I want to talk about consumer insights. Honestly, I've always had issue with consumer insights. I questioned the value and felt that CI was always somewhat disconnected from the real world. The big issue with CI firms is they don't hire people that know anything about video games and therefore don't have a fundamental understanding of what matters in this business. That's why I like Beta Hat. Beta Hat knows the business of video games and understands how to connect consumer insights to the real world. And Beta Hat helps you understand your customers, understand not only what they do, but why. They specialize in customer segmentations, brand tracking, messaging and positioning, pricing and skew planning, and playtesting through qualitative and quantitative research. There are about 10 people in this industry that I rely upon to understand trends. And one of them is Stan Kwan, the CEO of Beta Hat. Beta Hat is the best CI team in the industry. Go to betahatmr.com for more information. That's betahatmr.com. Welcome back from the commercial break, and let's start the news. All right. So jumping into news, the first news item we are going to cover is from gamesindustry.biz. Embracer Group acquires 13 studios. Here's everything you need to know. So... Embracer owns publishers THQ Nordic and, I don't know how you pronounce that, Koch Media, Koch Media, but in addition owns Saber Interactive and Deca Games. Uh, Embracer acquired Coffee Stain North, folding it into Coffee Stain, probably best known for Goat Simulator. Also acquired Quantic Lab, a Romania-based QA specialist. Snapshot Games, which is run by the creator of XCOM and launched a similar PC game called Phoenix Point. Koch Cock Media acquired Flying Wild Hog, best known for the Shadow Warrior series, and they are also developing games for Jagex. Through THQ Nordic, they acquired Purple Lamp Studios, which are based in Vienna and best known for SpongeBob SquarePants Battle for Bikini Bottom. And then via Saber Interactive, they acquired 34 Big Things, a small team that has worked on multiple HD titles and are working on two unannounced premium game titles. Also via Saber, they acquired Madhead Games based in uh, Serbia. Also Nimble Giant, the Unreal developer based in Buenos Aires, who worked on a shooter game. Also Sandbox Strategies, a PR and influencer relations agency. And Zen Studios, a Budapest-based pinball studio. Then they also acquired games through another entity called Amplifier Game, which acquired Silent Games, making co-op and multiplayer games. And finally, through Deca Games, they acquired the Canadian crew of A Thinking Ape, best known for their text-based RPG types of games, and Iugo, which has been famous for being the world's best negotiators and also developed The Walking Dead Road to Survival for Scopely and a mobile version of Middle-Earth Shadows of War. So as you can see, that's a shit ton of acquisitions and kind of shows you where we are as an industry today. I'm telling you guys there is a severe supply-side constraint because of the M&A activity going on right now and definitely is good for new game studios. As a worst-case scenario, you will just be able to do work, work for hire if you want to survive. But in terms of like Embracer Group and their strategy overall, the word on the street is that just in terms of like high level execs, like everyone is so super positive on Embracer. Like everyone's talking about, yeah, Embracers, you got to watch out for these guys. These, are, these guys are going to be making huge waves in 2021, blah, 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 blah. And so that's a high level executive view. My own view is I feel like I am 
probably the only person in any room who's a little bit skeptical about kind of what's going on. And I will say, like, until last night, to be honest, I thought that this strategy doesn't make any sense from a long-term perspective. However, I was able to talk to one of the CEOs from uh, one of the acquired companies, and I do see a little bit more of some of the advantages. I actually haven't asked him for permission to kind of talk about what, what the conversation or who he is, so I won't talk about what he uh, had uh, discussed with me. But I guess I can't argue that we are in an incredible time to be doing these types of deals. So, for example, we're near zero interest rates, so borrowing is cheap. We have massive public company valuations. And we've seen a bunch of companies do the private-to-public flip and suck up the arbitrage in valuation. But for me, the big question is, what are the long-term advantages of this approach over time? So if we're talking about a decentralized acquisition model, then what are the advantages of kind of moving company from A to B, right? Like, sure, if you aggregate some of these companies, there's access to capital, there's better predictability of revenue, potentially some shared learnings and best practices by some of the internal groups, but does this offset the centralized overhead, additional ceremony and communication costs, and comp for these big-time central execs eating up margin? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. So, Sure, we definitely have a lot of companies doing these kinds of roll-ups and valuations for these groups seems to indicate success so far. But the big question for me is, will there be a longer-term sustained competitive advantage or additional value from taking a bunch of companies without a specific focus or underlying structural or strategic advantage? Does this approach create real value or is it just financial engineering? Is it just rearranging deck chairs, taking $10 from your left pocket, moving to your right pocket? Does that make it $20? So I'm going to say after my conversation last night, I'm getting closer to neutral rather than fully negative. And there's a book that I was directed to read, and I'm going to read that book before I comment too much more on, on this issue, but we'll see how this plays out over time. But uh, yeah, I, what do you guys think? Uh, I'm going to continue a little bit from this. So one thing that I feel is affecting and leading to these type of strategies, in addition to what you just described, the low interest rates and and the scale and all those benefits from that, is Embracer is a Swedish based. It's it's out of a it's a Swedish based corporation. It's out of the Stockholm Stock Exchange, and we know that Stillfront is also in the Stockholm Stock Exchange, and Stillfront has been really showing how this sort of an index strategy works in the market. So we can see that them rolling up all these sort of um, small companies and the market is, rewar- is rewarding them sub- significantly. Their stock is going up like crazy, a quarter over quarter. And um, and my my take is a little bit like yours, JK, because I, I'm, I'm kind of not sold on this index fund of... I kind of have to say like average game studios and I don't mean it in any, any bad way. Like, you know, I don't even have an average game studio. So average game studio is already a good thing. So, so it's, you know, when we think about M and a, it's exploiting synergies, you buy development expertise or you buy audience uh, that is not fully exploited uh, or you buy scale, either EBIT or top line. So in case of Stillfront, because I don't know that much about Embracer, these AA developers, um, they buy EBIT to their portfolio. They don't have any kind of expectation for future growth for the studios, usually. Uh, there's no really audience arbitrage, so they're not looking to 
improve their monetization or do some kind of cross promotion between their different games because as you said jk they're separate entities and the growth occurs pretty much on the portfolio level and it's in and it's really fueled by the increase of the stock price so as you add more companies that have relatively stable ebitda uh, that don't require massive amounts of ua that are kind of like holding on and you pile them on one after another you end up creating this sort of a pyramid or just growth so the way I see it is Steelfront has really shown how this strategy works and they've enjoyed that first mover advantage. They're, you know, saluted in the in the stock exchange of Stockholm and they've been really good at the strategy that, that they've done. But now we're seeing other companies kind of like seeing how this affects and trying to employ it. And that leads to decreased targets, as you were saying, JK. And if we look at the Steelfront's latest acquisition, it was a company called Evergild that had 1 million in net revenue last year, at least according to Sensor Tower. Like, I mean, Eric likes to talk about mice nuts, but this is like a company that would get the uh, the, the alimony from Apple or the, uh, the cut. So it's like really small. And in comparison, we have companies like Zynga and Playtika that when they acquire a company, that company actually grows under them because they are using their you know, their, their expertise, they're, they're exploiting the synergies, whether they are being able to monetize better the audience, whether they're using cross-promotion, like in the case of AppLove and really fueling their different games and acquiring according that uh, vertical integration. In, in these sort of roll-em-up strategies, I'm, I'm on the negative side, and, and I wouldn't say negative. I would say I'm on the side that they will have to create that expertise to exploit the synergies. They just can't keep on buying these companies because there's too much competition for the purchase and they have to actually add something else rather than the stock price. So that's my view, but Eric knows best. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to take a little bit of a different angle here because I, I, I think I, I do believe in what Stillfront is doing in terms of rolling up these smaller studios and benefiting from more capital and more scale. So I think that kind of works. I think the real risk with uh, this particular company um, is that they're, doing it in a space that, and I don't, sorry, I'm stealing his terminology, but these established PC console space, right? The, 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 you know, time will tell if these, these assets actually churn out some value here, but uh, a collection of double A studios is not necessarily very valuable in, in the current market for console PC, in my humble opinion. Um, we've been moving more towards AAA every year and every cycle. And, you know, with FIFA Madden, Call of Duty, GTA Assassins. Um, and I don't know if their current portfolio really fits within the interest of the consumer um, on console and PC. And then uh, you put that on top is that the, you know, Xbox Game Pass and this rumored subscription service from Sony, you know, provides an insane amount of content for pennies on the dollar um, that compete directly with these AA games. And I think that puts these games uh, in, in, in a really tough spot, potentially. Um, so I think it could be a very overall risky strategy for console PC long-term. Now, what we are seeing again, as, as, as Joseph has said, and everyone probably knows, is the valuations and attention in the space is absolutely massive. So in some sense, they are buying at the peak, um, potentially, of, of the space. So I think there's far more risk with their model than it is with Stillfront. But... Again, only time will tell whether or not these uh, AA games get, get more uh, traction because they've definitely been losing traction over the last five years. Adam? 
Yeah, no, I think that's really the crux of it, right? Is is we we can't equate Stillfront and Embracer groups here because Stillfront is acquiring mainly mobile free-to-play services that have really proven out their scale and their sustainability. Um, a lot of the studios that we're talking about here, um, I just think are generally higher risk. And I think I definitely agree with you, Eric, that the timing means that they probably paid higher for them. Um, I, cause I, I can understand the appeal of ca capturing EBIT for mobile established services, but just capturing these mid tier double A studios in PC console, it, it's just a much more hit driven market to sustain revenue. Like we're talking about like THQ Nordic, like SpongeBob SquarePants, really like <laughs> how, how much confidence do I have into their next game that is going to be able to, to perform the same way as it has before, right? Versus me picking up uh, Storm 8 and, you know, assuming that they'll be able to continue to scale their live operations. So overall, within the cluster of these games that they acquired, right? Like I'm more positive about their acquisition of DECA than I am of THQ Nordic. <laughs> but, but I mean, surely the reason this is happening is 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 because it's been working. So it's, I wouldn't overthink this. You know, these companies can, as has been pointed out, you know, these companies can can raise money fairly easily because we've had a massive bubble of game valuations. They can still buy these companies fairly small. And you know, in some of the companies, they may not be particularly well known. But you know, um, Zen Studio is pretty well known for the pinball games. They've been doing that for well over a decade. You know, Iogo, as you say, made some you know, some brilliant games. They've seen the whole cycle. It's kind of interesting that they they were bought out at that time. I'm sure they've been, you know, they've had deals with people like Green in the past. It's going to be interesting that they, they choose to sell now. I mean, think, Thinking Ape also, you know, fairly well known, for some of their stuff. So so I would say yeah, there are some decent game companies in there. You know, they, they bought 13 companies for, is it $200 million, something like that. So, you know, it's a fairly large sum of money, but not spread across 13 companies. So I would say they've kind of got a good deal on some of the things they've got. Um, and I think these, more generally, these, these kind of bolt-on acquisition things, they work um, because it works for the company because every every quarter they, their sales have gone up because they bought some more companies. So, you know, I, I don't think investors are particularly uh, uh, kind of educated about how these companies work and it just looks like, oh, they doubled their sales again sort of thing. Now, it works for the companies who are selling out because they're cashing out now. And as you say, I think, you know, I think it is it is a good time to sell, a, to sell a, certainly a mobile games company at, at the moment. Um, and because they've specifically said these are bolt-ons, so they're not trying to build like a management layer because that's the difficult thing. If you try and do a lot of acquisitions and build a management layer that you don't have, then then everything falls apart. I mean, they're very clear, these companies, that there is no management layer, really. There's access to capital, I suppose. And and the other nice thing about these kind of bolt-on things is if, you know, you can bolt them off again quite easily. So, so you know, I, I think in terms of why it's happening, it's happening because it can happen. It will continue to happen until it can't happen anymore. Um, and and but the, the downside probably can be managed in the sense that um, you can just unbolt and, and, and sell off some of these companies without impacting you know the overall uh, kind of entity that you've built up. So, you know. yeah, and that, you know certainly like one hit game could <laughs> from from one of those studios exactly it, yeah exactly But I think and the other thing that I'm not sure about is that you know so to me it looks like a collection of a bunch of you know kind of disparate companies being put together like a PR influencer agency, premium games, free to play. But I don't know. The thing that I'm not sure about is that maybe they do have some underlying thesis, but from what I, I just don't know what it is. And, and so if somebody knows, please let, let me know. But I would say from the level of excitement that I'm hearing from other people in the industry, I, I don't know. I, I, either I'm missing something or, you know, I'm actually kind of surprised you're, you guys are all kind of, relatively neutral on, on, on this deal relative to a lot of other industry execs out there. But 
I mean, the proof is going to be in the pudding, right? Whether or not they can actually release games that do well, right? The, they're in a hit-driven business, right? This is not a software-as-a-service business that they own at this point, except for maybe a few of their assets. Um, so, you know, let's see what THQ comes out with next, you know, another Saints Row, right? But every Saints Row has done worse than the last, and the last one was really bad. So it's like, you know, I, I don't know what they're going to do, right? I don't know what assets they have. But right? this is their, I mean, this, is their like, entire, this is their entire business model. I mean, that you know, they bought they bought the only, the only reason they got THQ in there is they were like a Nordic Nordic uh, publisher distribution company who bought. I mean, they, they they're great at doing deals. They bought the THQ uh, IP and a whole bunch of other stuff for like yeah. They, they bought five, THQ five million after going bankrupt, right? I mean, they, oh, yeah, they literally yeah, no. yeah but, <laughs> they but, bought but, the but, assets. Yeah, they bought the assets, and they and they have all these. They have the same, you know, they have Saints Row. They have a bunch of these things which we may not think are particularly uh, great in this market. But from a company coming up from nothing, if you can get that for five million dollars and and make a you know a mobile game based on Saints Row, then maybe that's you know improves your your UA to some degree. I mean, I, I don't think they're stupid because they've been doing this. This is their roll up that's been going on. For before Steelfront were rolling up. I mean, Steelfront have raised more money and rolled up bigger, more well-known companies. Um, but uh, and, and you said they've been focused on mobile, which makes which makes that kind of synergy sort of thing easier. Um, but but I think you know, Embracer Group, you know, there is a in some in some ways you know, they've gone broader, so their 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 slate, their portfolio reaches you know <laughs> across a wider kind of slice of the industry. But they have been doing it longer, so um, you know, I, I think there is there is some method in 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 the kind of madness i'm not sold on john jordan at all it's like it's like Am I not being really deal. Back? you're like well because they've been buying for a longer time i think they know what they're doing this is like with all strategies if the strategy's working you know then you go well the only <laughs> reason the strategy is working is because we're in unprecedented times in terms of valuation right it's but not it because they are working. actually they don't think why they don't think why it's working. Basically, these guys had a strategy ten years ago, and it's continued to work for, for a decade. You know, the strategy, your strategy could be I'm going to make I'm going to outcompete Supercell by making a brilliant mobile game, and that's a good strategy until it stops working. You know, I mean, I don't think that's a strategy. I think that's well, a, it is a strategy. That's a crazy <laughs> that's, dream that somebody would have. That's so when what you're describing is when you start shorting a company, right? Where it's real no strategy. They're just doing momentum buying, right? Well, what about and, Tesla? How many people have, have, have lost have lost their bags shorting Tesla? in the last year you know <laughs> yeah tesla's a we, we are in weird times for, when it comes to investment i think these guys can just raise money and then they go well last year we we, we doubled our um you know we doubled our sales or doubled our profit and, and everyone goes share price went up this, or we can we, we can we can do another rights issue i don't know we shouldn't be throwing stones anymore maybe embracer wants to buy deconstructor fund seems like they're <laughs> buying everything so you know <laughs> it does seem to be the hypercritical podcast <laughs> Yeah. You'll get the best podcast in the in the business. So whatever. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about something something that gets Eric's blood pressure boiling, and that is <laughs> Apple reducing App Store cut to 15% for most developers starting in January. So App Store's small business program was announced and it will allow any developer who earns less than one million dollars in annual sales per year from all of their apps to qualify for reduced App Store cut of 15%, half of the standard of 30% fee on all paid app revenue and in-app purchase, so the whole portfolio. 
the company says that the vast majority of iOS app developers should be able to access the program, but Apple declined to say what percentage of the app makers would qualify. Apple also declined to specify how much of its app store revenue would be affected by the reduced commission. Now, according to Sensor Tower, of course, the estimated 98% of developers would be eligible for the 15% cut, but those developers generate just 5% of the App Store's total revenue last year. And for these app makers, that exceeds the 1 million threshold at any point. And, and for those developers that, that exceed the 1 million threshold at any point in 2021, they will be automatically removed from the program and subject to the standard of 30% cut. I don't kind of understand how this works. Like if you make 1 million and 1 cent, do you then have to pay the 30% for that 1 million or, or how that works. It, it sounds really confusing. Um, anyway, uh, my take is that it is an, it's a very interesting move. Uh, from PR perspective, um, it kind of shows that they're for the majority of the developers, especially the small ones. Uh, at the same time, I, I kind of, you know, it, it's kind of weird that you're pleasing the majority but ignoring the paying customer, which are the rest of the developers which are actually playing, paying the majority for in, in the App Store revenues. And unlike with Epic's Unreal Engine, um, these are kind of, this is like a hard rule, hard rule to follow. It's not like with Epic, it's like after you start earning a certain amount of time, then they take the cut and before that it's free. In this case, it's, it's the 1 million, but then if it's over, do I pay for the previous one? And how does it count? Where do I apply? How does it do it? Like it's, it's kind of difficult. And in the end, you kind of have to wonder is like, what's the effect? We're talking about, you know, tens of thousands of developers that are getting this um, this cut, which is really nice. But I would argue that a lot of these developers are kind of struggling unless it's like a one-person development studio because they are less than 1 million for the whole portfolio. And how much is that 15%, it's going to be tens of thousands. And it's not really fixing the real problem that you have with the App Store, which is discoverability and re-engagement. So the 30% tax and why there's been a lot of discussion about it, it's not just because Tim Sweeney, but it's it can be incredibly high for some and quite low for others. So for example, if you're a social casino company, you're not going to get any promotion from the App Store. Uh, if you're a small indie developer, you may get a massive amount of promotion for your size because they're going to run stories about you and you're going to get the installs and, and you're going to like what Apple is doing for you. If you're Apple's sort of a favored uh, publisher, they're going to keep on writing stories about your game and you're going to be on the front page. And if you're an Apple Arcade developer, it's going to be a party because they're going to, you know, pay for the development and they're going to promote you in the in the uh, storefront and you're going to drive traffic. So, unfortunately, even though this is a positive move from Apple, I kind of see it backfiring a little bit. the The IDFA has been a, a sort of a nuclear bomb, and and this is not really, you know, elevating that bomb. It's kind of aimed to please those who are not even affected by the uh, by the changes that are coming, and it's aimed to please those that are not really paying for the party, if you, if, if you know what I'm saying. So um, anyway, just in short, I think it's a positive move, but I think it's going to be interpreted in a little bit of a negative way. Um, Eric, what's your take? This shit's fucking outrageous. I mean, come on. Give me a break. I mean, I, dude, Sweeney must have been throwing fucking chairs, dude. Like, how many read this bullshit, you know? Like... 
Of course, they didn't say how much revenue would actually be infected by this because it's fucking mice nuts. It's like, it's ridiculous, you know? And so based on, you know, sensor towers, calcs and others, it's like 0.75% of their app store revenue, you know, they may be losing because of this policy, right? It's, it's nothing, right? It's absolute virtual signaling bullshit, right? That, you know, that tech companies love, right? These PR departments live for this shit where they can make people, make their companies do stuff that makes them show how much they care about the app economy. You know, they care about 0.75% as much, right? That's all they care, right? They don't. Um, and so it may be good for some small developers that are doing, you know, little things, you know, mom and pop stops, but it doesn't, it does not help those that are affected the most, as you said, by IDFA and other of these bullshit policies from Apple, you know? So, it, it doesn't remove the unfairness of the app store. And it's also not what Sweeney wants. Sweeney wants to do its own transactions on, on, on uh, handheld devices on, on, uh, on iOS. And they don't want to go through the app store regardless. Right. So I guess for them, you know, maybe it is a brilliant PR move, right? They use this as part of their defense. You know, they push the narrative that they're, you know, supporting the small developers um, and all this other stuff, which is actually kind of genius in its own way. But it's inadequate, right? It's inadequate from the concerns of the larger consortium of, of developers that are fucking attacking them right now. Epic, Microsoft, Tinder, Spotify, et cetera, right? So, you know, and we had some quotes in the, on the press that were, uh, you know, equally as, as damning. But like, you know, and Sweeney basically, basically said, Apple is hoping to remove enough critics so they can get away with their blockade on competition. That was a good quote. I like that one, right? And Eric Seifert's out there going fucking ape, nut, ape shit too. He was probably throwing chairs as well. I got to give him a call. But, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, I've talked about this so much. Apple is a bully, right? They are a bully in the space. They do what they want. They don't care about their partners. And they're acting in bad faith in every, almost every way they, uh, they handle these situations. And, you know, that, that old saying that goes, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that is exactly what is happening with Apple with their ecosystem. And I don't see how it's going to change. And I don't think Biden and his crew are going to actually make any efforts to uh, push, uh, push Apple to be better, right? Right. They're just not going to do that. Right. They're going to keep a closed ecosystem and they're not going to give anybody what they want. Right. So more and more pressure from from companies and more and more pressure from consumers. It was the only way they'll actually end up changing. But uh, I don't know if it will ultimately be successful. Mishka, I think to your point about how the system works, my understanding is that you get charged 15 percent on the first million dollars, but that million in first dollar gets the 30%, not that it goes back against the first million. It was my yeah, it's, It would be like one of, the, one of the ways to make it, I think, a little bit clearer and, and easier is just to make the first million at 15%. But again, that's a slippery slope, but then you're kind of asking like, how come the first is 15 and the rest is 30? So I do understand that it, it's, if you're an Apple, if you're Apple, this, this must be difficult. Like, you know, I, you're getting a lot of um, a lot of backlash, especially led by Epic, and you're trying to do a good thing, and then no matter what kind of a good thing you do, it tends to backfire. And Eric Kress will go crazy on you on a podcast. You know, it's it's just a you kind of have to think it from their perspective as well. It's it's yeah. Yeah. Okay. How about, how, okay. I'm gonna take I'm gonna take a different view. I I, I I'm gonna take the positive view here, right? Like let let, let for once in my freaking life, right? So. 
let's say that this is an evidence that they are actually kind of think, rethinking the way they do the app store, right? So they're starting off with a small, right? And giving them, throwing them a bone of 15% on a million bucks, right? Great, 150 grand, great, in my pocket. So maybe, maybe they're maneuvering and thinking about ways in which they can actually rejigger the app store and, and change policies for some of the bigger guys to make people more happy. Right. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's what's happening. Right. So let's 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 think positively, because at the end of the day, this actual policy is a pain in the ass for Apple to implement. Mm. Right. They, they haven't released all the details on this, evidently. But the thing is, like when you're dealing with that many developers, like you need the resources in order to fucking manage this shit. Right. So this is like the heart. This is the hard way. Right. If they were changing the policy for those that make over a million dollars, that would be far easier to implement in some ways. So it will take resources and, and, and management in order to make this thing work um because i don't know how automated it can be or what will be initially so all right i'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt (laughs) (laughs) of course i'm not really but (laughs) just take a step step back you know was this a pr move yes but is it better for the industry yes it's better for small developers it's a good move so you know i mean we can we can debate like what three or four percent of the revenue in the app store i mean that's like but is it is it a better is it better for the app ecosystem yes it is so you know I, i wouldn't call them bullies either that's 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 a little bit of a harsh word are you kidding me? You gave us a discount, you bully. <laughs> Are you joking? Are you joking? Well, well like not in this, I, I think Mr. talking about any other right? Yeah. Like not not overall, but in this context. Yeah. There's a difference context. between being a partner and being a bully, right? There's partnerships, right? And there's bullying, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think Apple is working in the best interest of their of their of their developers or their publishers at all. They're be- working on the best interests of themselves, right? Sure, yeah. they have... Uh, are, wait, are you really wanting me to, like, re-engage no. with this thing again? <laughs> no. Like, I mean, no, no, I'm just... <laughs> you go listen to the old just, podcast. Just, I've already just, articulated just, perfectly. All right, all right, so enough of Apple. Let's talk about Roblox IPO. Oh, very quickly, <laughs> on, on the Apple thing, I think I think in, in, some ways, in some ways you're being a little bit mean saying this is a PR move. Because um, I think this is... They wouldn't do this for a PR move. I think what's interesting, and the only way it kind of makes sense is... Is that they're trying to they're trying to create an anchor pro, an anchor number at fifteen percent. So this, this this clearly you know you've got thirty percent. There's a lot of hassle about thirty percent. Is that the right thing? You've got now other other app stores at different different values. So, so people know that you know in the industry and, and I think consumers it filters through to them as well. So I think this is this is the start of a of a you know what does thirty percent actually mean? And, and obviously there are arguments that. Um, you know, what do you actually give me for thirty percent? And 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 we kind of kind of see this. Microsoft have a, have different angles depending on on kind of how you link into their app store. So what would be interesting is is if they're basically setting up fifteen percent as a wider thing, and and it becomes, you know, the, it's the little companies first, but then it becomes everyone gets the first million dollars free, and then then potentially they go to everyone gets the first ten million dollars free, and then thirty percent off that. So I think I think it could be, you know, the 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 PR bit could be. You know, this is the start of of a deeper kind of strategy around um, trying to keep trying to keep because because what they definitely don't want to do is they, they don't want to lose control over setting setting the fee on the app store. That's clearly the worst thing that can happen for Apple. Um, so, but 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 tweaking tweaking the percentages, you know, they wouldn't want that to happen. But if that's where the pressure goes, then that's fine, and then you can decide where where you want to set that percentage. Because you know, you could say thirty percent, you know, was something that was plucked out of the air a long time ago, and and and. Generally, people would say it's no longer fit for purpose, apart from the fact that we make a lot of money from it. If you're Apple, so so I think there is something cleverer than than just some sort of virtual signaling. Um, and John, uh, but John, it depends. It depends John, where it ends up. 
John, with all with all due respect, John. No, you don't mean that. I don't. With all due respect, but, uh, no, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> this is exactly what they want you to think. Like, this is the whole point of PR, is to say, oh, wow, they're budging on the 30% for fucking, you know, 0.75% of the business, right? No, 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 no but I'm yeah. saying, I'm saying this is the start of seeing... It, no, I, but I, I'm saying I, your I, thinking is exactly what they want people in the press to think, is that, oh, wow, they're open to renegotiate and to think about it, right? Well, they are, but they, they are. They are it's not, because they if are. they were, they would have done it with the bigger accounts. They wouldn't have done it with, like, mice nuts of, of uh, in the store. And it's so, a thin wedge, isn't it? It's a thin this wedge. is they're what virtual signaling is. It's... You're defining virtual signaling no, by, no, by your no, reaction to this, right? No, virtual signaling is something else. Well, I think that, that, that's semantics. But I, I think this is, this is them realizing they're not going to stop at this. But they they they're going to put you know they're going to see how far they get pushed I think so I think from that point of view. so so maybe it is PR from that point of view then but but I think there is something deeper behind it than just the PR you're the, getting sucked into PR, the PR saying. void dude no no I think it's your you, you were t- you were too long at Pocket Gamer right you got to work in the business for a while and see how people fucking suffer because of because of Apple and this is not just during the people app suffer why, why do absolutely. they absolutely okay how much suffering they have to do and how much like fucking groveling they have to do in order to be featured and, and to yeah, no know, one cares do about what Apple anymore, wants. No one cares about features anymore. That's, that's, that that photo's long gone. Well, the reason they don't care is because Apple <laughs> fucked it up, right? I mean, come on, dude. You're killing me, John. You're killing we're, me. We're being really critical for a positive... Yeah, that's, that, that, that's what I was trying to say as <laughs> this well. Is, but this is, but, no, but this is my whole point. This is not positive. This is, this is completely fake. It's no, no, like take, fake news. Take the PR aspect away. Take the PR aspect away. It's a positive yeah. news, right? I mean, yeah. clearly it was, you know, that's what it was intended for. But anyway. All right, moving on. <laughs> Last news article. Uh, John, please take it away. Um, uh, well, I don't have too much to, to take away, really. I mean, it's just interesting in the sense that uh, Roblox has filed papers for I- IPO, and obviously that allows um, people to get a view of its financials for the first time, which obviously you know VCs would, would, would kind of know, but it's, this kind of stuff has to come out in the public. I, I think in general, maybe just from my point of view, I don't know um, for you guys, but I've always felt Roblox has been a little bit underestimated in, in the mobile sense. So I think it's been pretty much been mobile, uh, majority mobile usage since 2016, I think. Um, uh, but in the mobile space, I, I, I mean, I feel like I've not really covered it um, as, as a kind of a you know, big platform. So, so one of the things that came out from the IPO data was uh, $1.2 billion worth of bookings in the first nine months of 2020. Um, so that, that's, you know, to me, that's that's in bigger than, than I thought. And I think the thing with Roblox, and maybe it plays into my other interest in stuff like blockchain, although Roblox isn't blockchain, I should point out. Um, is the, is the platform, you know, is a platform where you're seeing these creators come in and it's not just kind of kids in their bedrooms. There are you know, proper development studios making, making you know, uh, games and, and experiences in Roblox and people are paying, other players are paying to get into there. And you kind of start to see this quite powerful user-generated uh, community. Uh, maybe it's not a metaverse, <laughs> but coming back to your point, but, but it, there is an interesting um, economy being created in there. Um, and and I guess we've seen uh, you know other IPOs. I mean, I guess kind of Unity at the, uh, six months ago, whenever that was, um, do very well. And I kind of think um, we're going to start to see a lot about kind of Roblox and and um, maybe it won't be underestimated underestimated anymore. Certainly in this kind of year where they they're going to have great figures. If you're going to IPO, I mean, 2020 would be the the time you would choose to release your figures <laughs> um, and and IPO uh, before the end of the year. Anyone uh, else? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I know a lot about Roblox, so I could yeah. talk about this for hours. But 
I, I don't know much about Roblox other than that they made ungodly amount of money and that their, you know, revenue per download keeps on increasing. They're making almost like 80 million in net revenue a month. So clearly doing extremely well. But when I was reading this article, it was saying that oh, in the, the IPO report that they don't expect to be profitable. They're not profitable now and they don't expect to be profitable in the near future, which is kind of no, Weird. no, no, that's not no? right, dude. I mean, that's gap. That's that's gap accounting. Yeah, so. you got to look at non-gap, dude. Non-gap, well, they're super. Well, exactly. Profitable. I just want to. I just want to understand how that works because we were reading that at the studio, and 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 I understood that it's because of accounting, but it's just weird to read this. Eric, yeah. So, like, I, I defer. Yeah, they all defer, and they defer in like, really long period, evidently. So that makes it even look even worse. So they are profitable. You know they're they they they're doing quite well. You know so don't worry about that. Um, it's really a question of revenue growth and and continued profitability and and how how they move forward and how they expand their market right because they're just growing like a weed right now after the mobile release, um, and they are they have a huge moat. Um, I mean I, I can go through it if you want. I just the the. Like out of all the companies that are going public, this one is by far the best, right? There's no yeah, doubt, right? This and, is like even better than a, a Unity. Like this company is insane. Evidently, the, the valuation that they're talking about is 20 billion, is what I've been hearing. Wow, which is insane. Um, so, so, and I'm not trying to throw rocks at it. I just wanted you to explain no. because I know that a lot of people read it and they kind of didn't understand what do you mean not profitable even with these type of numbers. And I was like, well, the, the, it's because of the accounting, but I I couldn't explain. Yeah, you know, the accountants basically require you to defer revenue if you're getting it over a period of time or the service is lasting over a period of time. And I'm not going to get into it because I don't oh, really okay, understand it, nor do I care. Okay. Basically, if you look at what they've earned in this quarter and how much spent they've spent in this quarter, they are very profitable, right? So it's, it's, it's called normally, not... If you take a booking, normally companies will spread that over seven months. It depends from company to company. I think there's a certain kind yeah. of leniency you can do, but yeah. it doesn't really it doesn't really make a lot of sense for for, for even some game products because basically, if you buy a hundred dollars of gems in a in a game, you spend it straight away. I mean, you're not, yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, But that's just the way it works. I mean, it's even like you know, like Zynga, Zynga now is doing done a, had a great year and and it's racking up massive gap losses. Um, but yeah, it's just the way the counting goes. But yeah, I mean, I then, uh, yeah, and then in Zynga's case, even though they're their their non gap if you take out um, deferred expenses et cetera is is around twenty twenty two percent this year so uh, profit so anyway um, so Roblox is the first mover in this user generated like metaverse type thing and they've been building this stuff over the last ten years and so they actually do have a huge moat from a perspective of having a collection of developers a a uh, um, a ecosystem of transactions and a bunch of buyers, right? So they have all three components to make a ecosystem and 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 sell to consumers. So even Epic doesn't have that yet, uh, not, not even close. And of course, uh, Monte, Manticore uh, is is developing it, right? Um, so so anyway, so it's like they do have a really good defendable thing. The problem is, is that when you look at Roblox, it's like, this is not the way you envision the metaverse, right? Because it's very blocky and very low res and very kitty. Um, and, it, and it caters to a much younger demographic. Um, and once you turn 18, people like churn out like relatively quickly, I've been told. So that's their biggest challenge, like going forward is to expand the demo and build better a better mousetrap to some degree um, because they do have what it takes. And again, I have a lot of friends that are there. One guy who's working on the developer relations side who was on the podcast. Um, Matt Curtis. Uh, yeah, Matt Curtis. Um, 
So, and, and there'll be a lot of people that compete, try to go after them, but they just have such a head start and, and such a, um, I think a defendable position that they should be able to continue to maintain that expand, uh, hopefully expand demos, but also expand geographies, um, and, and uh, others. So they will be a force to be reckoned with now. Of course, with everything, with every opportunity, there comes risks, right? That's the way you have to think about things, people. Um, first of all, their tools are a little bit archaic on a relative basis. They're really good for what they do, but not, you know, for the visual standards that we're used to, like Epic and and Manticore. Um, you know, like Sweeney, I think uh, the CEO is a visionary. I don't know how well he's going to operate and run a publicly traded company where you're dealing with quarterly earnings and and that sort of thing. That's a real challenge in general. I do not think that they have the resources in order to go public. Like, I don't know if they have the infrastructure to go public, much less the resources, right? So I, I actually, I think I reached out to the IR person. I still haven't heard back. It's been like three weeks. <laughs> so um, I think that's going to be a big challenge for them to go out and they're going to go out soon. Uh, so managing that is a really, really creates quite a bit of infrastructure. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that I would say, uh, their monetization is pretty fucking extreme. Like, if I were to be honest, right? Like, it's 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 egregious, right? Uh, the pay to win type thing, um, and with all the with all the scrutiny on on loot boxes and uh, children in general, uh, how they monetize uh, on their different apps. Is could come under some kind of scrutiny, you know, once they get more visibility. And that's why going public is not always the greatest thing, right? Because if you're not public, you don't get as much scrutiny or interest from governments and agencies and newspapers and whatever. So if they find, if, I don't know, social justice people find that they're, actually, that's not the right word, but, you know, people that really are looking after the kids type thing, you know, in Europe and stuff and find that they feel that this stuff is egregious, they may come after them. Um, uh, and I think some of it is, to be honest, the way that, the way they do it. But anyway, I, I know a lot more. I, I I'm going to be covering this company, so I, I'm you know I'm discussing it right now with a lot of my uh, investor clients who are looking at the IPO. So uh, feel free to reach out if you want get more information on that from me. Yeah, from my side, Eric, I think you've done a pretty good job covering like the main points of Roblox. Although I I might argue a little bit with you on that last point because I actually think that. They pr protect like kids' data and info so much that the information that developers are able to access right now about the audience is very limited. So you could actually make a little bit of the opposite point on, on that side. But I think the simple way to think about Roblox, like in terms of the financials, is like, yeah, if you look at net income, it's not going to look great. But you really want to focus more on the uh, free cash flow because of the way that, as, as Eric and John uh, explain the way that you defer revenues. And in terms of like the longer term opportunity for Roblox, I think Eric did a good job in explaining that they all, they do have one of the most defendable businesses out there. But what I worry about is in terms of like the future growth, like how much more can you grow this current? Like they, they've got a death grip on this kid's audience, right? And so you've got the ninja kung fu grip on this audience but they've been trying to work on expanding that audience for word on the street for the past five years right trying to build up 
a greater graphical fidelity, being able to provide tools so that their audience could build Fortnite-like experiences. We haven't seen that. And to be honest with you, I actually think that this over-obsession with the metaverse from the management, to me, is a little bit worrying because, like, how do you actually monetize the metaverse, right? So I'm not sure if that should be the focus of the management in terms, because, like, the metaverse is kind of like this, you know, it's a little bit of smoke and mirrors. It's a little bit of, like, you know, tappity tap, tap, tap. Like, what does that mean from a monetization or growth perspective? It, it's a little bit hazy there, right? So I would personally feel better if Roblox had a had a more convincing strategy around growth outside of kids, outside of, you know, to, to Eric's point, whether it's geographies or something, an adjacent market of some kind. But the more they talk about metaverse, at least from my perspective, the more I worry. But just to be clear, huge fan of Roblox, massive, massive fan. Don't get me wrong. I love Roblox. I will be buying Roblox just to be clear. But again, just to keep it real, how are they going to get additional growth? And so that, to me, that's a big question. All right. Let me just be clear on, on, the, on the monetization thing. First of all, I totally 100% agree with you. That's They spent so much time protecting the privacy of the children, right? Like they, oh, that's yeah. like been their biggest thing and they do have it. It's freaking ironclad, dude, like to some degree, right? I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is the way they monetize the audience. You know, not that that's that's what I'm worried about is that may come under more scrutiny when they go public. And I think some of it's a little bit egregious from the perspective of like creating addicted type loops to to make people make kids spend insane amounts of money that, you know, they don't want to be spending. Yeah. But, By the way, like people just say, like we're talking about a platform here. Right. So when you're talking about egregious monetization, they've pretty much open it up to developers to decide how right. to monetize on their individual exactly. So, so it becomes like, this becomes more like scrutinizing YouTube or scrutinizing the app store than scrutinizing a developer for egregious monetization practices. They've opened the door to developers uh, to do it, right? So yeah, but now I, I, now, I don't know. I think that's a distinction. Trying to police the content, right? That's a distinction without a difference to some degree. To some, I think, anyway, because... Oh, by the way, the biggest thing about this, oh, the other huge risk, which I didn't mention, um, I, 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 is that their model is like 80-20, right? They get 80% of the revenue and give 20% away, right? It's like fucking flipping the script, dude. You know, you don't want to talk about Apple being egregious. <laughs> like these guys are pretty egregious. It's like, so that actually may come into question as they get bigger and bigger and get bigger and bigger developers on the platform is that, that they, the fact that they get 80% may, may get pushed a little bit um, over time. So that, that, that's another big risk for them. But uh, so I, my point is, is that like, the reason I say that is because I think it, there is a nest, kind of a, a definitional problem, right? Where it's really, even though other developers are making the content, they're the ones that are really kind of benefiting from all the content. Course, and, yeah. We do the yeah. same thing as YouTube, same thing as, as App Store, right? Yeah, right. So I, I, I would see scrutiny coming in and they would then push that onto the developer to say, okay, you're monetizing kids in the wrong way. You need to change your app, which then could lower the total revenue of the total platform because developers can no longer monetize in loot boxes. I know, but that's why I'm saying it's a distinguished out of difference. Regardless, it's going to get more scrutiny. Yep. So things might have to change, right? Yeah, yeah. So they could see a you know, double digit percentage drop in the revenue because of loot box, but we're still looking at a hockey stick right now. Right. By like the way, do they do loot boxes in Roblox? I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm certain they do, but I, I wasn't really hundred percent sure. Cause I haven't looked at it in a while. Is that like a main 
monetization mechanic in their games. They also have a ton of like really slap in the face, pay to win types of things. Oh right? yeah, it, I mean it's freaking nuts, dude. But yeah. it, but it's because you just get a lot of these like mid tier developers going into the space, right? Like just throwing in whatever they can for young kids. So yeah, yeah. They, they should be they should be policing these games a lot better, right? Yep. But but uh, in yeah. terms of monetizing the metaverse, I don't know, Joe. Like how, how many Roblox games have you played to understand how they monetize? Like. I, from my perspective, I think Roblox is in a better position to monetize their metaverse than Fortnite right now. See, I, when you guys define, when you say the metaverse, like it's some like kind of like, yeah, exactly. I think everyone's seeing Ready Player One and assumes that's what the metaverse that's is. That's, that's, that's what I'm saying. That, that's the point. The whole industry doesn't know what the metaverse is. No, and- Roblox is a metaverse. Like it is by definition a metaverse in some ways. Yeah, it's social can, fucking. If we can just define the metaverse as like a really cool place for you and your friends to go hang out. Yeah, and, that's what that's what Roblox is, and that's what in some yeah. ways. That's what so the difference. That's what, that's what this is, and like the metaverse will evolve from there, become much more complicated. Maybe right. and, and Fortnite is a metaverse. Sure. Fucking GTA is a metaverse. World of Warcraft yeah, was the original fucking metaverse, right? Exactly. And, and and but the difference is is that is that you there's content creators and, and, and uh, uh, purchasers that, that ecosystem doesn't exist in any metaverse except for Roblox. Right. And so that, that will evolve. So then there's no growth because they're already there is what you're saying, Eric. Yeah. Roblox is in a very good position to continue to grow that model. Right. And I think Fortnite is getting there with their creative mode. Um, They still have to, 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 to reach that peak. And I think eventually it'll get to a point where, as we said, with that 80-20 split of revenue, then Tim Sweeney could be attacking that and saying, look, we can become the best place for creators to create content and then shift players from Roblox over to Fortnite creative mode because it's a better place for better content to be created. Um, I think there is a, a weakness there. And the, and the big fundamental problem with that is I don't think the tools are nearly as, as easy to pick up and use and build things as they are in Roblox. That's, that's why... Yeah. Yeah, so that that's going to be but the big Fortnite has decades of experience of building developer tools. They could at least build the depth that you could create something really different. Like I'm excited about things like Among Us being built within Fortnite, right? That right. you can actually create those types of party modes within there. Um, but yeah, they they do need to get the training wheels on Fortnite's creative mode as well, so that you can create all of the pizza delivery guy games in Fortnite too, which are super popular on Roblox. I don't know why, but they are, right? All right. Enough about Roblox. Okay. I think that's it. John, how can people reach out to you? Like, and let us know where where are you at these days in terms of if people wanted to look you up or read read some more of your stuff? Um, Probably the easiest place is is on Twitter. I am BlockchainGMG. That's obviously my blockchain uh, gaming uh, handle, but that's probably the best place. That's where I'm most active at the moment. Awesome. Yeah. And actually, I'd love to talk to you at some future point about I'm trying to learn tokenization. So, <laughs> you know, oh, my. Trying to, trying to figure it out. So, yeah, it'd be great to talk to you about that. Please do a podcast. No, I'm out. <laughs> I'm totally out. I don't want to talk about blockchain. I think it's. I just I want to ridiculous. understand it. I want, it. <laughs> I want someone to say to explain it to me. Anyway, sorry. We're, we're already way over time. Yeah. 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 More discussion on Deconstructor Fun Slack channel. 
challenge Eric, talk to Joe, you know, whatever. Ask Joe for permission to, to <laughs> access the Slack channel. <laughs> I see so many people actually applying with like JK and you're just letting any, anybody in. <laughs> and, and by the way, a, a quick apology to Ernest because it's so unfair that I'm ripping him a new one and he's not even here to defend himself. He's on um, he's on Slack channel though. So yeah, all right. Will... <laughs> so I, that's, that's a really low blow and... and but I, I was just, I was a little bit outraged. And I, 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 yeah. <laughs> all, right, I so, all right, guys, the end of our hypercritical podcast. <laughs> Welcome back. Right. Welcome back, Eric. <laughs> yeah, if I'm going to get fired, it's going to be because of this week. <laughs> all right, bye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.